This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I talk to election officials all over the country. In the last several months, I've traveled to election official conferences in several states and spoken to them. This is affecting Republicans at least as much as it is Democrats. And they feel like soldiers who were drafted into a war that they didn't even know was happening. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We've talked a lot about the ongoing attacks on both the right to vote and most importantly, to have that vote counted. And we are currently fighting for the future of democracy, as listeners of this podcast know, and to make sure our democracy has a future. And the front lines of that fight is the ongoing battle to ensure that people can vote and that when someone votes, that vote is counted and used to determine the outcome of the election. And that's why I'm excited to welcome back a great friend of politicology, David Becker. David is the executive director and the founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. He is a CBS News contributor and was a senior trial attorney at the Department of Justice in their civil rights division. David, it is so good to see you and thank you for making the time again today. Oh, my pleasure, Ron. It's so great to be back with you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Why don't we start with the table set? We've heard a lot over the last year about new election laws across the country, especially the laws in Texas and Georgia. Can you just begin with a lay of the land of some of the types of election laws that were passed in 2021 and uh, feel free to highlight any of the ones that stand out to you? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, it's important to kind of take a step back and realize where we are. Um, We are now, as we sit here in 2022, nearly 500 days since the 2020 presidential election, an election that was by every objective measure, the most secure transparent and verified election in American history. And it's not close. We had more paper ballots than ever before. All of the ballots in all of the battleground states were paper. They were audited more than ever before. 43 states audited their ballots. There's this myth that there weren't audits or that forensic audits were needed. The audits occurred. They were bipartisan. They were transparent. We had more pre-election litigation that clarified and set the rules in advance of the election than ever before. And we had more post-election litigation that confirmed the results than ever before. In fact, it was unanimous. Every single case confirmed the results. And uh, despite that, we're still seeing attacks on voter confidence, attacks on our very process of running democratic elections and the public servants who run them. And yes, as, as you note, I mean, some of this is coming out in legislation that we're seeing in the aftermath of the 2020 election. It's all being largely fueled by lies from the losing candidate in the presidential election. And it's unfortunate that while there are uh, truly courageous individuals who are standing up for 
for democracy, mostly election officials. Of course, people like Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State of Georgia, Barbara Sagaski, Secretary of State of Nevada, um, uh, Republican local election officials in Arizona and Florida and Michigan and many, many other places. Um, unfortunately, there's not enough of them, and they feel somewhat alone as some of uh, the legislators in some states pass some laws that are damaging the integrity of elections, not, not only not only making it harder to vote, but actually literally damaging the integrity of elections while they're purporting to help it. And, um, and so, yes, uh, you know, I, I, I think not all of these laws are the same. And I think that's been some of the problem in the messaging around them. Um, the, the Texas law, SB1, that passed in the summer of last year was particularly bad. Uh, Texas was already a state that made it very, very difficult to vote. It's hard to vote by mail in Texas. It's hard to vote early in Texas. Uh, SB1 made it even harder. Um, and we're seeing that now uh, in the sense that they passed laws that they weren't even prepared to implement. Um, they've, uh, the new laws required uh, more rigorous paper voter registration forms. Texas is a state where it, one of the very, very few states where it's not easy to register online. Um, almost every state from the deepest red states to the deepest blue states, allow you to easily register to vote online, which, by the way, is much more secure as well because they can vet your information in real time against the motor vehicles database and other databases. Paper registration is less secure, and Texas requires it. And now they didn't have enough paper forms, and supply chains are making it difficult to get the paper. So the eligible voters are having a hard time getting registered for the first in the nation federal primary, which is Texas on March 1st. Um, the uh, similarly for those uh, Texas voters that are eligible to request a mail ballot, which is a minority of them, uh, the new mail ballot request forms are having similar problems. So people who have a right even under the restrictive Texas laws are not able to access voter registration or mail ballot requests. But that's not even the worst of it. I mean, this in Texas, the really big problem, and this is what I'm seeing in several states, is while they're attacking voter access in some ways, and we should be concerned about it, it's the attacks on the post-election process, the counting and certification process, the efforts to inject chaos and confusion into that process, which are, which are most concerning. In Texas, for instance, partisan poll watchers now have the right and are almost encouraged to run roughshod in, in polling places. And if poll workers, trained poll workers, attempt to restore order to the polling place, try to get them to stop intimidating voters or inter interfering with the process, those poll workers are criminally liable under the new Texas law, not the partisan poll watchers who are interfering with the process. Um, laws like that, I mean, the, you know, in, in addition, the criminal, as I mentioned, the criminalization of of professional election administration in places like Texas and Florida and Iowa is an ongoing concern. Georgia's law was unnecessary and it was a step backwards for Georgia, but Georgia started out from a much better position. It is relatively easy to vote in Georgia. Um, it is easy to request a mail ballot. It is easy to find early voting opportunities and it is easy, easy to vote in person on election day. And, um, but there, there were some efforts to make that somewhat harder, particularly to request a mail ballot. And uh, it, it was it was really unnecessary. I mean, given that that Georgia actually in 2020 ran absolutely unquestionably its most secure, accessible election in the state's history as an original United States colony. Before we go any further, this is going to be a um, uh, there's going to be a lot of uncomfortable news, I think, for our listeners in this episode. But before we do that, are there any positive reforms 
that you've seen become law in the last year? Yeah, I think the most positive, I point to the state of Kentucky. Okay. Um, Kentucky is not necessarily a state that is the easiest to vote in. Um, They're still working towards getting better. But it's the one state, and really it's the only one that comes to mind right now, where Democrats and Republicans came together and listened to the advice of the professional election administrators of both parties and, and improved their election procedures with data and research based on what really worked in the state. It wasn't particularly easy to vote by mail in Kentucky prior to COVID, and they've now made it easier. Um, and, and the way that that worked is the Republican Secretary of State, Michael Adams, and the Democratic Governor, Andy Bashir, and Democrats and Republicans in the legislature listened to the election administrators who told them this worked, this didn't work, this was difficult, we need more money here. And so voters in Kentucky can be assured that the process for voting is more accessible and more secure than it ever has been in the state. And they've got representatives from both parties telling them the truth. Unfortunately, that's really the only example of that. You know, there's, there, are, there are states that are blue that are passing laws to make it easier to vote. That's a very good thing. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's important that this doesn't devolve into partisanship, that, that good election policies are not just a democratic thing because the Democrat happened to win the presidential election. There are good ideas Republican states have had over the last several decades. Online voter registration was an innovation that came out of Arizona under Republican leadership. Mail voting largely came out of states like Washington under Republican leadership. There are a lot of good innovations that have come under Republican leadership as well. And it'd be a real shame if the laboratories of democracy, the states, um, lose the ability to do that because one of the parties abdicates its responsibility to continue to look for better ways. Okay. I want to turn our attention briefly to uh, secretaries of state because some of the new laws um, we've seen uh, have have stripped secretaries of state of some of their power over elections. In Arizona, uh, stripped Democratic Secretary of State Katie Hobbs from being able to defend election laws in court. Um, That power now lies solely with the Republican attorney general. Um, It's also important to note that this new provision only limits the secretary of state's authority through the end of Hobbs' current term in office. And so it's not a reform that they want long-term. They're, they're just stripping her of that authority. What are the dangers we face when elected officials consolidate power over elections and defend election laws in this way? So it's really important in general that the post-election period have an aura of certainty around it. Not certainty in the outcome, but certainty in the process. That everyone can trust that whatever however the voters chose to vote, that the process is largely automatic and verified and transparent from that point on, that no one can put their thumb on the scale for either side. And when you allow for um, extreme partisans to inject confusion into that process or even attempt to overturn the will of the voters, that's not a good thing. And secretaries know this of both parties. So when you see... um, in Arizona, you're exactly right. The legislature stripped Secretary Hobbs, the Democrat, of power to um, a law enforcement power with regard to election policies in Arizona. And in somewhat of a brazen act, I mean, this, this does show a certain degree of chutzpah, um, expo- had this sunset as of the end of her term. Um, the, 
you know, that's, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And by the way, that has tangible results. I mean, for instance, uh, the, the Arizona attorney general who has very openly tried to link himself to the losing presidential candidate, um, has had an open complaint about the fraudulent forged slates of electors that came from Arizona. And there were two of them, two fraudulent slates of electors that were certified, supposedly certified illegally in Arizona. He's had that complaint in front of him for over a year and he's done nothing with it. So they, they moved election law enforcement authority over to his office and he's abdicated the responsibility that he's been given. I mean, we can probably have a whole separate conversation about Arizona because they've got a, they're, they're in a current legislative session where there are some truly despicable laws being considered. Um, but you know, other States like Georgia, where the secretary of state did a remarkable job under incredible pressures in his state, um, literally, you know, installed the first auditable paper ballot voting system in Georgia in two decades. All of the votes in Georgia in 2016 and 2018, pretty much all of them, with the exception of mail ballots, were digital ballots. They were not auditable in any kind of real transparent sense. They moved to a paper ballot system. And not only were those ballots auditable, they were audited and recounted three times statewide, three different ways, once entirely by hand review. So we know the results in Georgia. But more importantly, from the Secretary of State's perspective and from the perspective of him, his office and his staff, what a remarkable job to, to manage all of that change, to transparently demonstrate the outcome um, in the middle of a global pandemic. And um, his reward for that was that he was removed as a voting member of the state election board um, and has somewhat less power. Hope, I, I think he still has, given his his and his staff expertise and respect they have amongst the counties. I mean, he's still going to have a lot of influence over the process, which is good. Um, and it's not nearly as brazen as what we saw in Arizona, but it, it's still a concern. But it's unofficial influence, really. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's based, it, it, he, he, he doesn't have the ability really now, if the state board of elections disagrees with him to enforce anything. Um, and, uh, and he used to be the chair, the voting chair of that board. Let's talk about voting by mail. Um, two pieces of the election puzzle that have come under fire over the last couple of years have been uh, both voting by mail and drop boxes. Um, Ohio limited drop boxes to one per county. There's currently a court battle uh, playing out in Wisconsin uh, over the use of drop boxes. Can you talk about how important voting by mail and drop boxes are in, a, in, in our electoral system? And you know, for our listeners, you will remember just how crucial voting by mail was in 2020 and and the role that that played in uh in we'll call him the losing candidates approach to attempting to delegitimize the results of the election because of the way vote by mail uh the votes that are cast by mail are counted and there's a delay so i want you to talk about what's going on on that front Sure. Um, if it's okay, I'm going to separate out the two issues of the availability of a mail ballot with with the delivery system for that mail ballot, which is a which is a, which could be a Dropbox. Um, first, with regard to mail voting, mail voting people have to understand has been with us for about 200 years. Um, it is a, a key way that members of the military and overseas voters express their voice in our democracy. And it has gotten steadily more and more secure 
with more and more checks and balances, as we've gotten computerized, centralized voter databases in the states, as we've got more tracking mechanisms for ballots and things like that, it is now as secure as it ever has been. And it has adopted widely in a lot of states. Um, The vast majority of states make mail ballots available to any voter who requests it. A minority of states send mail ballots to every voter as the primary option, which they can choose to return by mail or in person at a drop box or can choose to uh, surrender their mail ballot and vote in person at a different location. States like Colorado and California do that, um, as do uh, Pacific Northwest states like Washington and Oregon. Um, States like Arizona have been a overwhelmingly majority mail ballot state for two decades, roughly. Um, It was about 80% male voting in 2016 when Trump won the state. It was about 90% male voting in 2020 when Biden won the state. Male voting is not new to Arizona. It's not new to Utah. It's not new to Washington, Oregon, or many, many other states. The states where it is relatively new, states like Pennsylvania, states like New York, it's a relatively new um, uh, innovation there. But we know how to do this, and we do it very, very well. Um, And uh, there's, there are so many security mechanisms in place with mail voting because you have to request a mail ballot in most cases, which requires a check against the voter file. It has to arrive in a physical location that you have. You know, if you live in, if you live in California, it's really hard to get a mail ballot. If you, um, from another state, it's flagged. They know it's gone to state. They'll check that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's, uh, and then there's always some kind of identity validation that's done, either signature matching or sometimes matching of a driver's license number or something else to make sure the ballot was returned by who it was supposed to be returned by. Um, There's one other big security advantage of mail voting as an option, which is that it spreads voting out over a larger number of days so that mail voting, as well as early voting, really serves as an early warning system. If there has been some kind of malfunction, if there is some kind of effort at coordinated fraud, that can be detected much earlier. We're, we're seeing, we, we can see that ahead of time. If you see the potential fraud or the potential um, cyber attack come in seven or 10 days before the election, your chance of fixing it, of preventing it, and making sure that it doesn't have an impact on the election goes way up. If you detect that at 1 p.m. on election day for the first time, you're going to have chaos. And so the states with a lot of mail voting and early voting, as well as election day voting, end up having a much more secure environment for voting. So mail voting is a very good thing. And as you're quite right, what we've seen is, um, you know, Trump probably much to the chagrin of his campaign operatives and Republican campaign operatives generally started spreading lies about the security of mail voting, which to prior to that point in 2020, mail voting was, at, was preferred overwhelmingly and disproportionately by older voters, voters who were white, and voters who are property owners. And I think most Republican campaign operatives will tell you those are their people. <laughs> yes, I will, I, I will tell you, mail-in voting has been a, a staple of Republican turnout operations on campaigns across the country for as long as I've been in politics. It has been, it, it has been a key ingredient to a Republican turnout strategy. Yeah, so he, I mean, Trump created a self-fulfilling prophecy by um, lying about the security of mail voting, where the only people who were believing him about those lies were his own supporters, resulting in an overwhelming disproportionality in the mail ballots being Democratic. And that um, uh, that would not normally have been the case. Um, it's So it was no surprise 
as everyone predicted, including myself, that because in some states those mail ballots are, are processed and counted later, particularly Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, the legislatures required that they couldn't be processed in advance, that those ballots were going to be disproportionately Democrat and result in what many people predicted was going to appear to be a blue wave, but was entirely explainable because, and, and it was really caused by Trump himself and his lies about, uh, about mail balloting. But yes, as you point out, now we're seeing states um, at a minimum, making it harder to request a mail ballot, um, refusing to expand mail voting or, or expand or continue kind of COVID accommodations with regard to mail voting. Um, and that's unfortunate because voters do find them more convenient. And election officials will tell you that the more people they can get to vote before election day, the more secure their elections are, the better and faster they can count ballots. I also think it's worth my noting that the efforts to curtail the ability to vote by mail are largely coming from Republican-controlled state legislatures and that Democrats are, by and large, in favor of more mail-in voting. Is that yeah, characterization which, which, which again is it, Yeah, it's, and, and, and again, just to, just to restate what we said before, that's such a shift. Right. Because it has been in the past, Republicans, um, look, mail is disproportionately used by property owners, by people who are less mobile, people who stay in their location for a long period of time. Um, you know, it, it's likely that Republicans believe probably correctly that those people might trend somewhat Republican. And um, and so this is this is actually going against the trend. And it's um, and it's all based upon um, I mean, there's no other way to to, to to discuss it based upon lies about this method of voting. So the other thing that we're seeing really attacked by kind of extreme partisans is the idea of what we call the drop box, which are secure locations that people who've received their ballot by mail can choose to deliver them to election officials. Um, every single election official, I don't know a single one that disagrees with this, both parties agrees that drop boxes are the most secure way to return mail ballots. And it's obvious why. It's because it eliminates the postal service middleman. You know exactly when it's been delivered to the election official too. You know it's there on time. If you put something in a mailbox, you hope it's going to be delivered in a couple days, three days, but you don't know for sure. And it's going to be go through the entire postal service process. And they generally do a very good job of that. I don't mean to, dis, to, to, um, to, to, to say something bad about the postal service. But look, I mean, if you were making a deposit at your bank, would you rather deliver the money directly to your bank? Or would you rather put it in an envelope and mail it to the mail it to your bank? And the answer is obviously you're going to want to deliver it to your bank. So drop boxes enable more secure delivery of ballots, and um, they also enable um, there to be again a reduction in confusion. One of the things we heard in the 2020 election was uh, a dispute over how how much after election day we should allow ballots to come in and whether they should be postmarked. States that do a lot of mail voting don't have that issue at all because they require ballots to be in by the close of polls on election day. That's not disenfranchisement. What they've done is they've made it so easy to return ballots and to be sure that they're in with ample drop boxes around, whether it's Republican secretaries of state in Utah or, or Washington or Arizona or, or Nevada or Democrats in Colorado and California. They've made it really easy to return, so there's no excuse not to get it in by the end of the poll, uh, close of the polls on election day. So that increases the sense of confidence and certainty that we have in the post-election process. Okay, terrific. Now let's turn to local election officials. From where you sit, local elections 
how do they work and election officials who are resigning or deciding not to run for re-election. I think when people focus on national politics, it's easy to see these election administrators as cogs in an election machine. But what are the challenges that we're now going to see with so many new elections administrators? Yeah. So, so first of all, we rely, we never have a, a one election. What we really have is about 10,000 little elections all over the country when we're having a major federal election. And in that network, we're, we're relying upon tens, hundreds of thousands of professionals who run elections. And these are people who do this work, not because it makes them rich and famous, whether they're secretaries of state all the way down to your local city clerk. Um, they do this out of a sense of civic duty. And, um, the idea that they would ever put their thumb on the scale for their own candidate or let their own political preference interfere with their duties is an insult to them, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum. Um, and they are, because the losing presidential candidate seems unable to process the fact that he lost and lost pretty badly, um, they are under attack. And I don't use that term lightly. Um, they, I, I talked to election officials all over the country in the last several months. I've traveled to election official conferences in several States and spoken to them and they feel like soldiers who were drafted into a war that they didn't even know was happening. Um, and this is, this is affecting Republicans at least as much as it is Democrats. And it doesn't matter whether the states were battleground states like Georgia and Arizona, or they were states that were won by large margins like Florida and California. This is something I'm consistently hearing from the professionals who run elections. And they are um, understandably asking themselves the question, is it all worth it? You know, I'm doing this job. I'm not getting paid a ton. I'm, I'm working really long hours. And now I'm getting threatened. My staff is getting threatened. My family, my children are getting threatened. Um, and when I say threatened, I don't mean, um, you know, just, just mean comments. I mean, actual death threats. Um, just, uh, just last night, we got word that the justice department, um, indicted a second individual under its task force, its elections threats task force for a threat against someone working in the Nevada secretary of state's office Oh wow! Uh, in a prior, uh, uh, indictment, against a man in Texas for threats against Georgia election officials. Hopefully there's more coming. Um, and it's taking a personal toll on these professionals, these civil servants. I mean, I'm, I was speaking at a Colorado election conference just a couple of weeks ago and I was talking about what they had achieved and it was remarkable. I mean, every election official somehow managed to, um, uh, record turnout, under unprecedented scrutiny in the middle of a global pandemic. I mean, which is still incredible. Yeah. And yet they're experiencing these threats. And I talked to them a little bit about what my organization is doing to help protect them against these threats. Um, and there was, there, there were some people crying during my presentation and there was, uh, uh, there was one woman in particular who was crying and she came up to me afterwards and she said, thank you so much. Can I give you a hug? And I hugged her and we talked a little bit and she was from Mesa County, Colorado. That's where the town of Grand Junction is. If you happen to know it right on I-70 and, um, that is a Republican County. And it also happens to be a County that was somewhat of a rarity because their clerk kind of fell prone to the Trumpist narrative and 
tried and, and allied herself with Mike Lindell and tried to give election deniers illegal access to voting technology. Um, uh, a bipartisan group of election officials in the state have removed her from office. There are Republicans who are now temporary caretakers of elections in Mesa County, to ins- including the former Republican Secretary of State of Colorado, Wayne Williams, to make sure those voters can have confidence their votes will be counted accurately. But this, this staff member in this office, she had been through some stuff, along with all of her colleagues. And um, we're, we're, as a democracy, if, if our civil servants are experiencing something that looks a lot like PTSD just because they did their jobs and counted their ballots correctly. I don't know what that says about us as a society. This should be one of the most boring jobs in government. That's <laughs> I mean, yeah, really. no, it, and, and honestly, it, it, they, you know, what they've always fallen back on is process, right? It's a really process oriented yeah. job. It is, it really appeals to people who are sticklers for detail and process and transparency. Um, it's, you know, like I said, you're not getting, there's never a headline after on the Wednesday after an election that's everything went great. They never get credited, right? (laughs) Their best case scenario has always been everyone just smoothly votes and no one thinks about the election after after it's over. And now they're being attacked and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's truly awful. And one other thing to consider is, you know, the, the, the year after a presidential election where, where the redistricting is happening, which is what 2021 was, um, and it only happens once every 20 years. That's normally the quietest time. There's not a lot election officials normally can do because they've got to wait for the districts to come in before they can allow for candidate qualifying and drawing of precinct lines and all of the other things that, that they would use for, for planning purposes. So this is normally a really quiet time for them. And it gives them a chance usually to you know train staff and plan for the future and recharge a bit. Um, they have not had that. They've been on the front lines nonstop for years and years and years while they're dealing with whatever their families and themselves might be dealing with the pandemic and everything else and being attacked. So I don't want to um, uh, associate the people who would engage in intimidating uh, uh, actions and, and, and death threats against these uh, people with the general Republican push to move more part, move party loyalists into election administration roles. But obviously, you know, I see them as inherently linked, but I'd like for you to talk about this, the push to move party loyalists um, into these roles and the impact these officials can have on elections before and after ballots are cast. So there's two problems with all of this. One is the one I mentioned that that we might lose a generation of election administration experience. And that alone is a problem, even right. if it regardless of what it's replaced with. But that begs the second question, was, which is what is it going to be replaced with? Right. And there does appear to be an element that feels very passionately and is motivated, unfortunately, often um, having been targeted for constant disinformation. That um that they feel like their job is to take over these, these roles in election administration and deliver elections to their candidate. Imagine living in a country where you honestly believe, a 50-50 country, where you believe it's impossible for your candidate to lose legitimately. I mean, it's, it's you know, who in the United States yeah. hasn't suffered a severe electoral disappointment in the last six years yeah, or so, of course. right? I mean, it's, right. It, 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 this is, it's, it's a democracy. It's, a, you know, 
can, can you imagine someone going into a football game and not imagining there's a chance that your team could lose? I mean, this is, right. of course, of course your, your candidate could lose. This happens all the time. Um, and, and we should say, and, I'm sorry, we should just pause and say that is a hallmark of what it means to be American democracy. That, 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 that is what facilitates the peaceful transfer of power that makes us um, the most advanced democracy in the world. That's exactly right. We often talk about the goal of election administration policies and, and transparency is is primarily to convince the loser that they lost. Right. Because the 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 willingness of a of a losing candidate to accept defeat and then begin their campaign for the next election and that is that is a that's a wonderful part of American democracy. And we've seen it on multiple sides, right? I mean, it's not just Democrats or both sides have done this and they've right. they've been noble in I mean, I, I still remember John McCain's speech after after he lost the 2008 election. I, you know, how can how can we forget the speech that Vice President Gore gave, although being very disappointed yeah. in a truly close election in December of 2000. Um, so this has happened on both sides, but it, you can't have a functioning democracy if there are candidates or even a, a, most of a political party that can't process the idea that they might actually lose, particularly in a nation so so closely divided as we are. And yet, so we have these individuals who are now trying to seek office and it ranges from seeking local county offices, local election judge offices, being, uh, working as poll workers to, um, several secretary of state candidates in states like Nevada and Arizona and Georgia and Michigan who are running on a campaign platform of election denial or actually, are actually telling their voters, if you elect me, my job is to ensure my party wins the election. That is very, very dangerous. And while, you know, it's difficult for any one election official, even at the secretary of state level, to single-handedly declare the loser of an election the winner, it is still very possible for them to create so much chaos and confusion in the post-election process that it would enable unscrupulous individuals in the legislature or elsewhere to rationalize and justify replacing the will of the voters with their own. We're seeing that right now, particularly in states like Arizona. Tell us what that looks like in Arizona. Arizona, in some ways, is exhibit A for the attempts of the election deniers to seize control of the state apparatus and deny democracy in their state. You have... um, Several Republicans, I don't want to say a majority, I don't want to say, uh, I don't even know if these bills will pass, but there are several Republicans, including someone who's going, who's running for secretary of state, who are pushing laws that are openly seeking to allow the legislature to review the votes of voters after they've been cast and to decide to ignore them. Um, they literally have a bill that's pending right now. Now, whether that bill will pass or whether it would withstand judicial scrutiny. I think both are unlikely. But, but, um, and, and remember, this is a state that last legislative session, someone proposed a law that would allow the legislature to decide to just certify different electors than what the vote, voters chose in a presidential race. That did not pass either. But the idea that there are people out there who think it's okay to subvert the very core of American democracy, the will of the voters, and replace it with their own view, which they apparently believe is much better than what American voters can do, 
And this doesn't, this isn't just happening in Arizona. You can see this throughout what we're seeing in the um, attempted coup by the Trump campaign, um, the Eastman memo, the Waldron slide deck, um, the, the fake slates of electors. This was all based on the idea that we don't like the way the voters voted. And so we're going to try to find a constitutional cheat code that will enable us to ignore it. Um, that is something right out of Saddam Hussein's Iraq or out of North Korea. And it's nothing we've seen before in this country. No. I mean, even when there have been disputed elections, there have been, you know, Florida 2000, there was a legitimate dispute over a very small right. margin of victory um, uh, that was, uh, that both sides legitimately litigated in the courts. Um, there, there's reasons to be unhappy if you happen to prefer Vice President Gore. There's reasons to be happy if you preferred um, then Governor Bush, now then afterwards President Bush. But you can't argue that there wasn't process. This was all done transparently. It was under, done under due process, and there was and, and a ruling was made, and both sides respected that ruling. Um, and 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 just to be clear, that was 537 votes in a single state that decided the electoral college. We had a minimum of three states elect, deciding the electoral college in, in this election, and none of them had margins of less than 10,000 votes, which anyone who works in elections will tell you in a recount or audit circumstance is a landslide. Before we leave this topic, I'd love for you to share a little bit about the election election official legal defense network that you've set up and what that team is set up to do. And have you actually needed to set, you know, step into any cases yet? Yeah. So, um, I mentioned the threats on election officials. That's real. There've been literally thousands of them. It's almost every single state debt from secretaries of state down to, uh, volunteer poll workers. And as we were learning more and more about this, and I was talking to more and more election officials, I was speaking with uh, two men I've just got a tremendous amount of respect for, Bob Bauer, who's the former uh, White House counsel to President Obama, and Ben Ginsburg, who is the uh, longtime Republican lawyer and actually um, was, was the lead uh, counsel for, for George W. Bush in the Florida recount. Um, and they were both concerned about this as well. They, they, they co-chaired the uh, Presidential Commission on Election Administration, which released a report in 2014. They knew how much we rely upon these professional election administrators, and they felt the, the, the weight of these threats on them. And they published a, a couple of op-eds, one in the New York Times in June and one in the Washington Post in, in September, um, talking about ways in which we could protect these public servants. And I've been working with them for some time. And in September, we launched what we, the three of us call the Election Official Legal Defense Network, E-O-L-D-N, as in network.org. Uh, you can go to the website to check it out. And it's a project of my nonprofit, uh, the Center for Election Innovation and Research, which is at electioninnovation.org. And um, what it does is we recruit lawyers from all over the country, licensed, qualified lawyers, and we provide a platform for election officials to confidentially and safely report issues they have that they might need legal advice or representation on. And we then pair lawyers purely on a pro bono basis, no out-of-pocket cost to the election official, to give them advice and support. And that advice could be as, as small as you know an hour phone call. Um, getting advice on how to deal with someone who might be harassing them or uh, or some legal issue that that could um, affect their ability to do their work. 
And then, um, or it could be as great as criminal defense representation, um, Mm -hmm. where we have seen this attempt to criminalize professionals who run elections, and there have been threats of arrests um, in states like Wisconsin, for instance, where professionals, nonpartisans, have been threatened with arrest um, to uh, just for doing their jobs. So, you know, that is a, um, uh, I will say we ha- we've had several requests for help. We have paired several election officials with lawyers. We maintain strict confidentiality about the nature of all of those. Um, and we're, we're actively, we're working with several law firms. We're actively recruiting lawyers. It's really important to note, this is entirely bipartisan. If anything, it might skew slightly towards Republicans in terms of who's needed the help. But it, it is the Republican and Democratic lawyers, Republican and Democratic election officials, we're going to pair them whenever they need help, whenever they're not getting the assistance they need from their own legal counsel. Are you actively looking for lawyers right now if there are you know, politicology listeners who are attorneys who are willing to volunteer for this? Is, should they get involved with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're a licensed lawyer in any state in the country, um, go to EOLDN.org. You'll see two big buttons on the homepage. One is I'm an election official and I'd like to request assistance. And another one is I'm a lawyer and I'd like to help. I'd like to volunteer. And if you volunteer, we'll keep your information on file. We'll, when we get a request that you might be qualified for, um, you know, obviously jurisdictionally qualified. Uh, also, if it's a criminal matter, we want to go to a criminal lawyer. If it's a civil matter, we want to go to a civil lawyer, those kinds of things. But um, it's, uh, we're actively recruiting. Um, and it's, uh, we've been really heartened by the response, both from election officials, um, and from lawyers who volunteered, but I'll also say there's a part of me that, um, that is really saddened that we live in a society right now where we need a nonprofit like mine to provide basic protection to public servants who heretofore have been anonymous, who are just doing really good work and who... And where 2020 was their greatest success in history. Um, And they're finding themselves under siege. Politicology, let's get the word out. And if any of you are lawyers who are listening and have some time and think this is important, please go check out David's website, eoldn.org. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.